Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So, a lot has happened since the last episode. Many lives have changed, some lives have been lost, and our entire societal structure has shifted. We're having to do something we rarely have to do, which is change, reorient our lives altogether, and acknowledge a mutual moment we're passing through as a society and as humanity. It's always good during such events to sit with the magnitude of it, to pause for a moment, to take a deep breath, and to be present with it all. It's an easy time to feel anxiousness or panic. It's also an easy time to tune out. I saw one meme that said, first time in history we can save humanity by lying in front of the TV doing nothing. Let's not screw this up. And that's the road that some will take. I'm sure the gaming industry will thrive. Some will inevitably pass the time getting drunk, In New York, anyway, they deemed liquor stores essential businesses and allowed them to remain open. Some will turn their thoughts towards others, because even in the midst of a pandemic in which we're all meant to stay at home, there is, as always, a whole lot to do. There are lives to save, emergency funding bills to pass, communities to organize. All this is important. Some will pass the time thinking they're doing something when most of what they're doing is obsessing. Some will stay busy just to stay busy, seeking out the latest stats and figures and posting and commenting and reposting and retweeting. Some will deny it all, seeing it as the elaborate plot of some hidden conspiratorial forces and shake their heads at humanity for being so sheep-like. Some will immediately seek to shift their livelihoods online, and as someone who's connected to the yoga community, I've definitely already seen this. A hundred variations of join me for class online today. Hey, let's Zumba together at six. Don't let coronavirus get in the way of your fitness goals. All that. All this happens. All the inevitable movements of the dynamic dance of change. And with all this, it can be valuable to take a moment, just a moment, for meditative pause. Just a moment to sit and breathe and feel what this moment is beyond any labeling of it. Just to sit with the raw feelings of it. Sit and breathe. In the pulse of the pause, what arises? Waves of feeling intuitions, visions perhaps, a reconnection to the reality that human beings, for all of our great achievements, still are subject to the forces of nature as we always have been, that there are great mysteries at work and we can't understand them all, movements and tides that are beyond our reckoning, in the face of which we remain very, very small. Let's colonize Mars, let's live forever. And then a little microbe comes along and all of a sudden plans change. How many times have our ancestors stared across wind-blown horizons into uncertain futures, 
glacial crossings, vast herd migrations? How many times did they navigate uncertain waters? How many lives have been upended with people required to adjust again and again and again? And there were some who succumbed along the way, and some who persevered, and some who took lessons to heart so that they could respond if it ever were to happen again, and some who did not. And for some, the spark of their spirit was dimmed, beaten down, and for others it was rekindled, and they felt more alive than ever before. It's dynamic right here at the edge. So today I'm going to share some perspectives on disease and nature, and all the perspectives that I'm going to share today grow out of all that I'm feeling, out of love and compassion for all who are suffering, for the global situation we find ourselves in, understanding that this moment has real consequences to it, both in terms of those who are actually suffering from the disease and those who are suffering with the economic uncertainty and the very real prospect of losing their jobs and livelihoods. When we take a pause to look at causes and roots, to examine imbalances that may have led to the situation that we're in, it's not to minimize the present reality of the situation, the fear that people are feeling, the suffering that many are going through. It's rather an attempt to understand how we got here, to get to the root of the issue, the center of the wound, as it were, so that we can avoid it in the future so that we can build a world that doesn't have to face this in this way again. And if we don't have the courage to look at root causes, then we set ourselves up to go through it all again and again and again. And also, of course, none of what I'm going to say is any kind of recommendation to ignore Western medical perspectives on the coronavirus. It's not a statement of I'm right and someone else is wrong. I highly encourage people to follow the recommendations of the health authorities and to distance, and to boost their immune systems, and to not OD on social media panic. This is simply to offer a glimpse into what you could call a nature-based view of the current situation. The Pandemic and the Goddess, Perspectives on Humanity, Disease, and Nature, today on The Emerald. I've been to see her many times, this particular goddess, with her halo of flames, reddish in color, multi-limbed, holding a trident and a bowl, one hand raised in the gesture of dispelling fear. She's beautiful. In the south of India, you can find her everywhere. Nearly every village has a shrine to her, and sometimes these shrines are simple stones dotted with red, and other times they're more elaborate temples with thousands of devotees flocking there. The temple to her that I visited in Madurai was busy with activity. There was, as there almost always is, a sacred tree and an ancillary shrine to the local cobra spirits where people pour offerings of milk on stone snakes. Outside of Trichy, in her full glorious and fearsome form, there were crowds and crowds pressing in to see her, clutching offerings, flowers and leafy garlands and money and little milagro-like effigies, little tin body parts. 
There was devotional music blasting and beggars tugging at our sleeves. There's a long, long line, of course. Always is to see the Divine Mother in that part of the world. And there, in the center of the fray, there she is. Her name is Maria Man. You may have never heard of her. She's not one of the grand Vedic deities. She doesn't have any Sanskrit texts dedicated to her. But to millions of people across South India, she's absolutely central to daily life because she is associated with something that every human community, at least in recent memory, has had to navigate. Goddess Mariaman is associated with disease. When our primary framework for understanding Indian tradition is textual and meditative, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that in practice, particularly in rural areas and villages, much of daily ritual practice has to do with direct interaction with the forces of nature. Particularly central to this all across rural India is the navigation of disease. It's unusual for many of us in the modern world to think of disease as a day-to-day concern. Maybe we get a flu shot and hope not to get the flu. Maybe we get a cold once or twice a year. If we're traveling, we get some injections, maybe. Maybe not. I usually don't. We don't think about a measles epidemic taking out millions of people. We don't think about polio. We don't think about smallpox. But for centuries and centuries, at least since the domestication of animals, navigation of disease has been a very central aspect of human life. In India, when people are speaking of the goddesses, they're speaking of forces of nature. The goddess, the universal goddess, Shakti, Prakriti, is nature. Prakriti is another word for nature. And so the varying goddesses govern different aspects of nature, including disease. So disease goddesses are everywhere in rural India. A major focus of rural village goddess worship is specifically about bringing into balance, from a ritual perspective, the forces that cause disease. The southern goddesses associated with disease are numerous. Mutyalama, Elama, Posama, Sitalama, Palalama, and of course, the beloved Mariaman. These goddesses are absolutely central to village life. Though this can be difficult to see while we're in the throes of it, the understanding around disease, and this is true in cultures across the world, the understanding is almost always that disease marks something out of balance within nature that plays itself out among human communities in order to eventually come into balance again. This understanding of disease as an imbalance within the forces of nature is reflected in the Tibetan medical understanding as well. A recent article on the site srimala.com gave a deep insight into the traditional Tibetan view of disease. Quote, In general, Tibetan medicine recognizes four main causes of disease. Disease caused by imbalanced diet, disease caused by an imbalanced or unhealthy lifestyle, disease caused by seasonal influences, and disease caused by so-called provocations, or invisible harmful influences, dun in Tibetan. Dun generally refers to disease triggered by the provoking of spirits. 
but it can also include illnesses linked with invisible microbes. In the Tibetan worldview, rimne, or infectious diseases, are seen as mostly coming from dun. Spirits who are the true owners of natural forests, mountains, oceans, etc., and the wild animals and ecosystems found there, are said to send out contagious bacteria and viruses in retaliation when human beings disrespect nature and wild animals and engage in destructive and unsustainable activities, extracting resources through mining, cutting down forests, releasing poisons into the air and water, polluting ecosystems, and so on. This is why Tibetans sometimes do ritual practices to propitiate and pacify these owners of disease and the natural environment they govern when contagious diseases strike. And that's the end of the quote. So whether or not you believe in disease-causing spirits, there's absolutely no doubt that coronavirus and many of its predecessors stem directly from human disruptions of nature. The New York Times reported eight years ago on how the emergence of new diseases is intimately linked to the disruption of nature. Quote, Disease, it turns out, is largely an environmental issue. 60% of emerging infectious diseases that affect humans are zoonotic. They originate in animals, and more than two-thirds of those originate in wildlife. Experts are trying to figure out, based on how people alter the landscape with a new farm or road, for example, where the next diseases are likely to spill over into humans, and how to spot them when they do emerge before they can spread. End quote. The article goes on to list some specific examples of diseases arising from nature, including a Malaysian epidemic that stemmed directly from bats. Bats may have played a role in the current coronavirus epidemic, which originated as best as can be construed in a wild animal market in China, where the virus may have transferred from a bat to a pangolin to a human. Interestingly enough, as early as the 8th century, Tibetan medical texts were warning that bats were a source of disease and the consumption of bats was made illegal. I mean, kind of strange that you'd have to discourage people from eating bats, but there you have it. This anything-goes mentality towards nature, we can eat whatever we want, build wherever we want, dig wherever we want, dam the stream, level the forest, stick this species in a cage with this species, and hope it all comes out all right. In an interconnected world, this is bound to have deeply disruptive consequences. As environmental reporter Emma Gilchrist wrote in The Narwhal recently, quote, as we push into increasingly remote places to extract oil, gas, minerals, and trees, we come into contact with new species and drastically increase the likelihood of the emergence of new diseases. This idea of altering the landscape being a primary contributing factor to the emergence of disease is not limited to scientists. The Srimala article on the Tibetan medical view of disease outlines what activities specifically are likely to disturb local nature spirits and therefore prompt disease outbreaks. Quote, According to many traditional cultures, the natural world is home to more than flora and fauna. It is also home to a vast network of elemental spirits. These spirits are affected by our interactions with the environment, meaning that pollution, deforestation, and the depletion of resources have an impact on them. It's believed that illness develops among these classes of spirits due to environmental imbalance. As explained by Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, 
Epidemics like these are usually connected with mammals, a traditional class of elemental spirits in Tibetan and Indian culture. In particular, the following activities are considered to be the major causes of disturbance. Digging the earth, especially at a nyensa, that's a vulnerable place. Taking what was underneath and bringing it to the surface. Cultivating wild grasslands for agriculture. Disturbing and polluting natural water environments. Converting wild land into a garden or yard. Felling trees. Cutting or mining stone. Releasing toxins into the air. Killing animals. Gossiping, spreading rumors, or participating in negative actions. Spiritual practitioners not keeping up with practice commitments and seeking only to gain power and defeat one another. Shaman Hatley, in his work From Matra to Yogini, Continuity and Transformation in the South Asian Cults of the Mother Goddesses, gives us a deeper picture of these elemental spirits. Quote, The Mamo is known for causing havoc with a roll of her magical dice, creating pestilence and warfare. Mamos are said to inhabit the charnel grounds with matted hair, armed with sacks full of diseases, notched sticks, black snares, and magic balls of thread. It's a vivid picture, but these elemental spirits are not simply, as we would say, evil. There are considered also to be enlightened beings among them. Quote, The mamos become enraged when people lose touch with their own intelligence, and therefore with reality. They are associated with the karmic consequences of degraded personal or societal actions. Once enraged, mamos tend to cause large-scale problems, fighting and civil discord, famines, plagues, and environmental calamities. In the mamo chant, it says that they incite cosmic warfare. Cosmic warfare. That might sound like a pretty extreme term, yet look around. Look at what is happening across the planet, the malicious destruction with which we treat nature, the vast disruption we have caused, the deep chasm between human beings and the natural world, the loss of connection to place. Look at how humans wander this earth disoriented and anxious or depressed and alone. How millions are left behind with no social safety net. How we perpetuate ongoing suffering through the very real destructive power of the forces of greed and ignorance. And how at every opportunity, every dip in the market, every setback, every war, we fail to look at causes and just keep on going as we were before. Look at the model of perpetual growth, perpetual expansion, more, 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 and see just how out of tune with the cycles of nature that is. Look at the economic repercussions of this pandemic and understand that an economy that keeps billions on the edge of going broke, almost 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, an economy that has no ability to prepare for periods of slowdown which are inevitable within the cycles of nature, Look at how this runs utterly contrary to the rhythms of the natural world. For everything, there is a season. And in a world of great wealth and resources, a three-month slowdown should not cause people to scramble to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. So yeah, cosmic warfare might not be the day-to-day term you or I would choose to use, 
but we cannot be blind to the fact that this pandemic is directly related to our treatment of the natural world. More and more pandemic experts are saying so. When do we listen? When do we take extremely simple steps like a global ban on animal markets? When do we shift our malicious behavior towards ecosystems? When do we get the message and change? When we lose all sense of reciprocity with the natural world, all sense that we live in an interconnected web, all sense that what we do to the web we do to ourselves, all sense that the steps that we take on this planet matter, if you believe even slightly in the law of cause and effect, then you understand that there are consequences. So back to the mammals, these Tibetan nature spirits. Mammals are directly corollary to the disease goddesses of South India, Forces of nature that, when disturbed or not properly honored, bring imbalance and disease. And again, it's important to understand that, at least in the Indian vision, these natural forces are not considered evil. The matris, or amas, depending on the region, are intimately associated with fertility as well. Mariaman, that goddess with a halo of fire, the Tamil goddess associated with disease, is also a goddess of fertility and rain. Her name, in fact, relates to raindrops, which have the power to cool and therefore wash away disease. So she is both the bringer and the dispeller of disease, just like her northern counterpart, Shitala Devi, who rides her donkey and sprinkles pox in the form of lentils on the people, but also carries the cooling ganga water to wash the pox away and the whisk to dispel anything negative in the air. There are stories in which Shitala cures all the children and the villagers rejoice. And then there are stories in which she brings the pox herself. There are stories where she infects the fever demon himself, who was born of Shiva's sweat. She infects him with pox and thereby vanquishes him. And then there are stories in which the fever demon is her husband. So we have nature balancing nature, balancing nature, balancing nature. We have this vision of the goddess as both the bringer and dispeller of disease. How do we wrap our heads around this? How does this fit into conventional narratives around good and evil? Life is good, and that which negatively affects life must be evil, of course, right? Disease takes life, so certainly it must be evil. Well, think of nature. The same force of nature that can be life-giving, say a river or a rainstorm, can also be deadly when it floods. When things are not properly respected, or channeled, or contained, or settled, they can be deadly. So the mother goddess in traditional Indian understandings is just as likely to take life away as she is to give it, because she is nature. Respecting nature does not simply mean taking loving strolls among the wildflowers in the park. It means reverential awe for the mother that one day, for certain, will take us out of this world just as she brought us in. That reverential awe perhaps should border on fear. 
not fearing nature in the sense of the when tornadoes turn deadly or when animals attack sensationalism of those 90s fox shows, but rather approaching pristine ecosystems with a little bit of fear of consequences if those ecosystems are disrupted. This may not be the worst thing for us to feel these days. Something's got to shake us awake to the consequences of our actions. Certainly in India, the relationship with the fearsome goddesses is not as simple as a conceptual, detached, philosophical bond between individuals and abstract forces. It's very tangible. There's a deep love for the fearsome mother goddess, and it's also tinged with fear, as Sarah Caldwell documents in her book, Oh, Terrifying Mother. It's what we feel when we stare into the reality of death, an impermanence, an infinity, with the knowledge that what we do during this precious life is part of a delicate balance, and we want to do whatever we possibly can to not disturb that balance. So when worshipping Mariaman, some will fast for many days, some will walk on hot coals, some will pierce themselves with lances, deliberately submitting themselves to pain. Suffice to say that many people take the ritual placation of the forces of nature very, very seriously. It's so urgent, in fact, that it requires some type of self-sacrifice, some type of taking us out of our normal way of being. And of course, if we forget that, if we don't find ways to sacrifice to nature in this understanding, then she'll still exact her toll at a time and in a way that is not necessarily up to us. So yes, our role is to feel nature for the awesome force that it is, far more powerful than our limited attempts at staking some type of permanent claim to this world far more powerful than any attempt to own her or profit from her or figure her out. Nature, infinitely beautiful, infinitely terrifying. As the Kubjika Mata Tantra describes the moment when the great goddess emerges from this primordial lunar stone, she is horrifying. And she is beautiful beyond compare. Often, the understanding of disease and its associated goddesses has to do with the temperatures of hot and cool. The hot energies get disturbed or do not have proper outlet, or are not properly channeled through a ritual honoring of nature, and an imbalance results which causes an outbreak of hot afflictions. The red dots we see at the shrines to these disease goddesses, red dots which we recognize from so many ritual contexts within India, communicate in this case the intensity and heat of the Shakti's energy. They even resemble the pox with which many of the goddesses are associated, and in trance rituals in which the goddesses are placated, trance devotees are covered in red dots and wear garlands of neem leaves. The dots are also the cooling raindrops, which cool the hot afflictions and wash the pox away. So Mariaman, when disturbed or dishonored, is herself the dots of the pox, and she's also the dots of the rain that cools the pox. Death and life, fever and cooling, all within nature. (laughs) 
this understanding of temperature and of disease as a hot affliction is interesting, given current scientific understandings that the heating of the world is going to result in diseases being released from melting ice, and that warming brings new disease. The BBC reported in 2017 that, quote, long dormant bacteria and viruses trapped in ice and permafrost for centuries are reviving as Earth's climate warms. And here's Emma Gilchrist again, quote, A warming world is also linked to an increase in the spread of disease. One need look no further than the spread of Lyme disease in Canada, for an example. She quotes Nicholas Ogden, Director of Public Health Risk Sciences at the National Microbiology Laboratory of Canada. Environmental changes, including climate change, are drivers of the emergence of new diseases. He also gives the example of Lyme's disease, which was constrained to one small area of Ontario until the early to mid-2000s, when Canada saw the sudden proliferation of the black-legged tick. The expansion of the black-legged tick's range has been linked directly to a warming climate. So at a time when the world is getting hotter and hotter, the feverous afflictions multiply. The message, of course, if we choose to look at it this way, is to cool down. The process of self-isolating, seeking a self-imposed hibernation, is in itself a process of cooling. On the other hand, the urgency that humanity has around constantly producing and getting things done is easy to see as a hot affliction an affliction which is, of course, resulting in a hotter world. Like a frog in boiling water, many have described the current global situation. We're all hot and bothered. We have to go out every day and achieve and accomplish and build and conquer and go to our hot yoga classes before we make our business deal and go, 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 go. Now, I know people need to work. I certainly do. But the point is that we can't be all hot all the time. Produce, produce, produce. No end in sight. Nature doesn't work that way. Nature heats and nature cools. Plants grow and fruit in summer. They shed their leaves and turn inward in winter. If we can't handle, personally or globally, a few months of slowdown without the whole system melting down, then something is deeply out of balance. It means that we have an economy that's based on a fundamentally imbalanced view of reality. Remember that the mammals, those tricky nature spirits, become enraged when people lose touch with their own intelligence and therefore with reality. Well, I can think of nothing further out of touch with reality than the notion that we can have unlimited growth on a planet of finite resource. Eventually, the wave crests, as all waves do, and we find ourselves forced to cool down. It's interesting to note that as Beijing began to tackle coronavirus and the pace of life in the city slowed, carbon emissions that contribute to warming went down by some estimates up to 150 million metric tons. So in this case, slowing down has literally meant cooling. The disease goddesses in ritual practice are placated through cooling. Sitala Devi, who is sought during times of disease, her name literally means the cooling goddess. The plant associated with the cooling process is the neem tree, which is a very special plant indeed. It has antiseptic and antiviral properties, and village rituals around disease inevitably involve cooling with neem. In fact, the goddess, in many places, is the neem tree. 
the cooling force of nature herself. So what does cooling down mean in practice? It doesn't mean that we fail to act. It doesn't mean that we fail to treat the problem head on, to give our support to the caregivers who are working around the clock, to try to get measures passed to boost the social safety net. We can take the action necessary, but it may mean a deep investigation into root causes, time to reflect on what we can do differently. How can we change a global system in which billions of people lose their livelihood if we slow down for even a couple months? As one CNN article recently stated, the answers suggest the need for a complete rethink of how we treat the planet. And for us personally, what do we do when things stop? What do we do when forced to cool down? Does our mind get even hotter? Or can we find within ourselves a gradual recalibration? In some ways, how we interact with the pandemic is how we interact with our own consciousness, with anything challenging that arises in our minds or our lives. Do we go the route of the Chinese government, denying its existence, disappearing those who try to warn us about it? Do we take a Trumpian route instead, labeling it a hoax? concerned only with how it all appears and not with the root suffering underneath? Do we use it as a way to reinforce our fears or to face them? Do we use it as a way to hoard or to reach out and help? Is it a mechanism for fear or for love? Does it sequester us in an anxious home? Or does it get us back out into nature, where we can re-experience the awe, the primacy, and the reality of what is and always will be? In Wuhan, one woman in quarantine, Rebecca Arundel Franks, detailed the positive changes that hibernation, isolation, quarantine has brought. She says, quote, Our family life has never been better. Usually one weekend is long enough before I'm ready to send each of us back to school or work. But for seven weeks, we've been home together with very little outside influences or distraction, forced to reconnect with one another, learn how to communicate better, give each other space, slow down our pace, and be a stronger family than ever before. We've learned how to accept help from others. During this time, we've had to rely on others to show us how to get food and other things we need. People here are so good, and they want to help. It's satisfying to accept the help. Right now, I hear birds outside my window on the 25th floor. I used to think there weren't really birds in Wuhan, because you rarely saw them and never heard them. I now know they were just muted and crowded out by the traffic and people. All day long now I hear birds singing. It stops me in my tracks to hear the sound of their wings. My cooking has gotten way more creative. I'm cooking like a homesteader. Housekeeping hasn't suffered either. We take naps in the middle of the day sometimes. We've all been reading so much more than before. I've reconnected with lots of old friends. We've talked with our families more than ever. So ultimately, anything that reminds us that we are not all-powerful, that we live in a world of forces greater than us, and that we can in our own ways always be seeking to bring things into greater balance, has a deeply positive side to it. It takes work to see it that way. I'm hoping that we can all be cautious, can be diligent, we can do what needs to be done, and also use this as an opportunity to remember a bit about what we value, 
and what is truly precious, to remember her, nature, all-powerful, infinite, within whose jurisdiction, as Ramakrishna put it, we all dwell, and in the end, every breath we take is hers, and every word we say is hers, and every step we take upon this earth, that's hers too. This episode contains reference to many books and articles. These include Tibetan Medicine and COVID-19 by Eric Jampa Anderson, that's on srimala.com, and he references the work of Namkai Norbu and Dr. Nida Chenogtsang. Scientists put pandemic's potential link to climate change under the microscope in the Winnipeg Free Press by Sarah Laranuk, The Ecology of Disease in the New York Times, Jim Robbins, 2012, Shaman Hatley from Mater to Yogini, Continuity and Transformation in the South Asian Cults of the Mother Goddesses. Russell Rogers, Understanding Dun Season, an article on Shambhala Times. John Vidal, The Tip of the Iceberg, Is Our Destruction of Nature Responsible for COVID-19? That's in The Guardian. Emma Gilchrist, What the Coronavirus COVID-19 Pandemic Tells Us About Our Relationship with the Natural World. That's on The Narwhal, an environmental journal. The book Vicissitudes of the Goddess by Sri Padma Holt. O Terrifying Mother, Sexuality, Violence, and the Worship of the Goddess Kali by Sarah Caldwell. And, of course, When Animals Attack, that classic late 90s show from Fox. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (music) 